Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus, and we're picking up this evening uh, with step number three on exile, and today we're on page 64 with number seven, and if you remember, exile is part of the, the break from the world, the, the, the first three steps capture, uh, renunciation, detachment, and exile. And uh, exile, as he briefly uh, defined it, was separating from all things in order to be inseparable from God. And as we go further along, he'll make it very clear that it's not a hatred of the world or a hatred of others, but as part of the monastic life and certainly those going into the desert, it was uh, to really set aside everything in order to be completely focused upon God, but also to be able to enter deeply into the silence that in one fell swoop, they sort of removed everything within one's life that often becomes a distraction for us. And even then, I think it was a struggle for them because even though they would leave these things, still attachments remained in the heart and would seek to pull them back to the world. And, uh, and so again, we're picking up with number seven on page 164. You've become an exile from the world. Do not touch the world anymore because the passions desire nothing better than to return. And this is often what we've discussed in that little proverb from, uh, the, or that little saying from the book of Proverbs, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a sinner returns to his sin. There's something uh, about our sin that even when we uh, move away from it, and even when there's a part of us that really does desire to reject it, we often will have contradictory aspects of our minds and our hearts, and we will be drawn back to it if we turn our mind to it or, or if we come into contact with that which was, would give rise to the passions in our life. And so no, long, no matter how long a person has lived in solitude or uh, if we're in the world, no, no matter how long we've been free from the uh, pull of a particular passion, we always have to be watchful of our hearts. It doesn't take much. The evil one is patient, and uh, slowly he could let us, you know, give ourselves over, let down our guard over the course of time, and make us think that we have moved away from it, or it no longer has any hold on us whatsoever. And then the moment that we turn ourselves to it, uh, we're drawn back in, and sometimes in an even more powerful way. Number eight, Eve was exiled from paradise against her will, but the monk is a willing exile from his home. She would have liked the tree of disobedience again, and he would certainly expose himself daily to frequent danger from relatives according to the flesh. And so even though, you know, the, the monk has a kind of clarity about his desire to move away from the things that give rise to the passions, uh, John is telling us here that even despite this desire, uh, we often frequently put ourselves in harm's way. And, uh, the, and it takes a lot of humility and I think honesty to be able to see that within us. This kind of profound contradiction internally that we can love and hate the same thing at the same time. And so even while reading the fathers and on a daily basis, trying to remove ourselves from the, those things that lead to sin, at the same time, we can be 
plotting, if you will, for ways to expose ourselves to it. Or we can tell ourselves five minutes uh, before, you know, I'm not going to watch this program or whatever it might be, and then find ourselves, you know, going on YouTube or, or you know, Netflix or Amazon and doing the very, that very thing. And whether it's explicitly sinful or simply we see ourselves as wasting our time, distracting ourselves, uh, we can do it in a, in a split second. We can make that shift within the heart. And again, this sort of uh, encourages us to embrace the, the wisdom of the fathers to maintain this kind of watchfulness through these short prayers, this movement from the mind and the heart toward God again and again throughout the day so that we uh, are, are not only moving away from the, the thoughts or the things that can pull us to sin, but we're moving toward the one who gives us the grace uh, to engage in that spiritual warfare and, uh, and so remain faithful to him. Number nine, run from places of sin as from the plague. For when fruit is not present, we have no frequent desire to eat it. So uh, we've often mentioned St. Philip's little maxim in the, in the struggle with purity of heart, the coward is the victor. And so the one who runs away from those situations and circumstances where one is going to be put to the test. And, uh, and so we know where Philip got this and certainly it was from Climacus, he read Climacus and uh, it's wise counsel. You know, it's right from the beginning, not putting ourselves or God to the test. And so we will often linger in things uh, and seeing how far we can go before we commit a sin. And, uh, and so we regularly put ourselves to the test. And that's one thing that we have to get clear in our mind is this immediate movement away from the things that we know are, are going to take us there and, and to run, in fact, that there should be a kind of urgency that comes upon the heart to, to turn toward God in order that we might be free from it. And this is where a kind of this ascetical training comes in. You know, we're, we are forming the mind and the heart through our spiritual reading, through fasting, through unceasing prayer to make this movement to God. So that when those times do come, when we are tempted fiercely, we make the movement swiftly. If we may wait to begin praying until that moment, uh, the battle's probably lost. Because I think once we find ourselves, you know, being hit by the wave of thoughts, it becomes very hard to turn the mind and the heart to God. Number nine, number 10, be on the lookout for this trick and wow of the thieves. For they suggest to us that we need not separate ourselves from people in the world and maintain that we shall receive a great reward if we can look upon women and still remain continent. We must not believe these suggestions, but rather the opposite. So what is it that we look upon and covet? You know, certainly for a monk who's gone into the desert and is seeking to protect this purity of heart, uh, you know, to put himself in a situation where uh, he might be tempted or he might be more vulnerable simply through what he sees. And this is often how we begin to covet something is through, the, the, through our sight. And so 
what is it in our life that we allow ourselves to gaze upon uh, that will stimulate the, the desires or the passions or the appetites in one form or another? You know, it's uh, often some of the saints warn us to avoid the kitchen during the day. Because if you walk through the kitchen and there's a, uh, a plate of cookies there, seeing that plate of cookies, you're, you're going to grab one as you run through. Uh, even if you're not hungry, there's something about seeing them there that gives rise to the thought, oh, that's, that looks good. And uh, so th this is why you hear some you know, saints who found religious communities and sort of encouraging that, you know, not to eat between meals, nor to go to the place where the food is, precisely that you're, you're not tempted. So there are a lot of different ways, you know, I think where the advice given here would apply to our day-to-day our -day life. Uh, St. Charbel is often presented with his eyes cast downward uh, for a reason. And uh, St. Philip Neri, uh, who I've often mentioned here, within the confessional, uh, even though he was a man of purity of heart, really from his earliest years of his life, uh, you know, he had certainly was, he maintained his virginity, but, he, you know, chastity, he was known, you know, for guarding his heart. All of the time of hearing the confession of women, he did not look directly at them. And uh, some might say, well, okay, this seems a little bit, you know, scrupulous, maybe a little severe. Uh, but I think Philip, and as with so many different saints, understood clearly their, their weakness, their vulnerability. And, uh, and so even again, as I mentioned that he was known for his purity of heart, he knew what he was capable of in his lesser circumstances of what could give rise. And so he again, wouldn't put himself or God to the test. And uh, now I'm not saying everybody should walk around with their head toward the ground, but to be honest with you, if you walk around Oakland in the summertime, or even the winter for that reason, for that matter. I mean, it would be probably a good thing, uh, precisely just because there are so many things that are put before us in the course of the day. And, uh, and so it's not only things that are obvious to us, television, computers, but I think it's those things that we encounter during the day that if our sight is one of the ways that we are in this constant state of receptivity, then the guarding of our sight uh, is something very important. Uh, I've told this story in, in other groups before, but I made a little pilgrimage to Egypt and we are on, on our way to Wadi Natrun, the where the desert monasteries are. And on the way, our bus picked up a Coptic monk and priest and he was very friendly and joyful and he got on the bus and he said, well, now I'm going to teach you uh, a song. And so I thought, oh, this is great. We are probably going to learn this, like, you know, hymn of the, the cops, you know, some, something beautiful. And he began singing, you know, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For there is a loving God who knows what you see. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. And so he went through all the, all the things. Be careful, little hands, what you touch. Be careful, little hands, what you touch. For there is a loving God who knows what you touch. So be careful, little hands, what you touch. And, uh, 
you know, I, I remember at the time, you know, it was like three years into my priesthood. I thought, you know, of all things, you know, we're taught this child song. But as the years have passed, it's surprising that lodged in my memory as this very simple way of teaching this kind of watchfulness of heart and not to bring shame. You know, there is a little loving God who knows what you see or knows what you touch or knows where you walk. And so be careful, you know, watch, watch your mind and your heart and your, all of your senses. And, uh, and in essence, this is what the fathers are telling us. This constant state of receptivity is part of being a human being. And as we know that we struggle with sin and we know that we have to guard these senses in order that we might maintain our virtue. Okay. So that having been sung, I should have, I should have sung that better full voice. I'm sorry, Vicky, or I, we lost you here. I should have uh, done that in bass. That would have been much better. So, uh, number 10, no, number 11. When we have lived a year or two away from our family and have acquired some piety or contrition or continence, then vain thoughts begin to rise up in us and urge us to go again to our homeland for the edification of many. They say, and as an example, and, the, and for the profit of those who saw our former lax life. And if we possess the gift of eloquence and some shreds of knowledge, the thought occurs to us that we could be the saviors of souls and teachers in the world, that we may waste in the sea what we have gathered so well in the harbor. Let us try to imitate not Lot's wife, but Lot himself. For when a soul turns back to what it has left like salt, it loses its savor and becomes henceforth useless. Run from Egypt without looking back, because the hearts which look back upon it with affection shall not see Jerusalem, the land of dispassion. Those who left their own people in childlike simplicity at the beginning and have since been completely purified may profitably return to their former land, perhaps even with the intention after saving themselves of saving others too. Yet Moses, who was allowed to see God himself and was sent by God for the salvation of his own people, met many dangers in Egypt, that is to say, dark periods in the world. So, wonderful paragraph. That those who have gained much through uh, this kind of exile, this separation uh, from the things that would lead them to sin can be drawn back in subtle ways and even for virtuous purposes. The thought can come into mind that you know all the things that have been learned or gained, uh, not only by the study of the fathers, but living in the desert, the depth of prayer, the watchfulness of heart, that somehow that would prepare oneself to be the teacher or the savior of others. You know, that there's a void within the church and I can step into that and, you know, all the things that I've learned in the desert. And so step out, as it were, as he says, the harbor where it was safe and where they weren't uh, experiencing the dangers of the sea, uh, then to be shipwrecked after they had gained all that they, they had because they put out heedlessly. 
And when they do this, uh, they imitate Lot's wife, you know, looking back. And it's interesting how he picks up here on uh, the salt losing its saltness. You know, it loses its capacity uh, to preserve, or uh, if we look at it another way, to give taste, that it becomes worthless. Often in, in Jesus' time, the ovens where they would make bread would be lined with salt, that it would help radiate the heat. Uh, but over time, that salt would break down, and they would have to clean it out, clean the oven out. And the only thing that it was worth was to be thrown on the road and trampled underfoot, that it couldn't be used for any purpose after that, after uh, being used within the ovens. And so this is what John is saying here, that you know, once one has lost that fervor for God, that, that desire for him that led one to take this path and that desire for intimacy and has turned back to the things of this world and tasted those things or, or looked to those things for fulfillment, then all that has been gained can be lost completely, that one can be drawn back to what is of lesser value when they have been given everything uh, in, in their asceticism within the desert. So they lose that childlike simplicity and they're drawn back. He uses here the word dispassion, and it's an unusual word for us. And it's, it's not talking about uh, being like a Stoic or having no desire whatsoever. It's often described as uh, passionless passion, that, the, uh, that our desires are, are ordered toward that which is good, both in the world, but the greatest good toward God. And so the desire for him orders all things within our life. And so this is the goal of struggling with the passions and to overcome them in order that our true passion, our true desire, might be directed toward God and toward the life that is pleasing to him. So, and so even Moses, he says, you know, who was given the gift of seeing God, uh, that even he faced certain dangers in going back to Egypt, even to fulfill God's will. And so that should tell us something that here, you know, the greatest of prophets Moses, you know, and the greatest Old Testament servants of God, you know, was tested by uh, go going back to where he came from. Okay. Any thoughts or comments so far on what has been said? Okay. Number 12 on page 65. It is better to grieve our parents than the Lord. For he has created and saved us, but they often ruin their loved ones and deliver them up to their doom. He's not talking about you here, mom, so don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, that, you know, often families would oppose, you know, this pursuit of the Lord in a non-inhibited way or, you know, try to obstruct that path. And we've mentioned, you know, characters both East and West where that was true, where they would be locked up and in order to keep them from pursuing their particular vocation. And uh, certainly that would be true of, of one seeking to enter into the desert. You know, families would want to preserve them from that. And, um, you know, we know, you know, Francis of Assisi, you know, experienced great opposition 
Thomas Aquinas did as well. You know, so many, again, many saints East and West uh, often you know, had to overcome those hurdles, at times at great loss, at great sorrow. And uh, as we go along, you know, uh, John draws us back to the gospel in this regard, you know, of Christ coming. And he says that, think not of come uh, to bring peace, but rather the sword or division, that this, what is being put before us is the, uh, God's revelation of himself and his son. And we've been given the most perfect and precious of all gifts in him. And what this demands from the human heart is a response of our whole selves. And, uh, and so John reminds us of that, that you know, this comes from the Lord himself and who had to leave home himself in order to take up the ministry that would ultimately lead him to the cross. And, uh, and also lead Mary to participate in, in the sorrow of the cross as well. Sue and Mark. I'm sorry, Father, I'm gonna verbalize it. Um, I went to, uh, to number 11. And one thing that you, and um, if you could explain this to me, I'd be really grateful. Mm -hmm. One thing you often hear um, in opposed or in juxtaposition to this is, um, you know, the, the quote from Christ about um, not putting your light under a bushel basket and that um, that is, would be something that be used to say you need to be out in the world and doing works, good works, works of mercy and various things like that, rather than um, being in the desert. And I wondered if you could answer that, please. Um, I'm sorry it's put so badly. No, it was put perfectly. And uh, I think that would be certainly a strong uh, temptation, again, for those entering in the desert. And this is what, uh, in fact, what John puts forward, that kind of idea, you know, not hiding your light under a bushel basket, that that would be the temptation. But I think the light that the monastics give the world is of a different sort. It is of a life given over completely to God. Uh, giving oneself over to him, you know, in every aspect of life. And this bears a kind of light uh, for the world and also for the church, this absolute kind of commitment to the Lord. And it always has. I mean, it's been uh, and a source of strength for the church. You know, you could have a contemplative community in the heart of a diocese that is hidden. And what, what they do is hidden from the the eyes of others, but nonetheless, it becomes a light for the church and for those who are engaged in the act of ministry, you know, in, in the sense of giving light to their minds and their hearts and giving them strength, and in through the prayer and the sacrifices that those in the contemplative life make. We are one body in Christ. And so, you know, those who embrace this life of radical solitude now, bear witness not only to an aspect of the life of Christ, but to also give strength to the body and light uh, uh, to uh, the church in, in ways that we, we can't imagine. And so we don't want, I think, to look at things in an individualistic kind of way. We want to see these vocations within the context of our understanding of the body of Christ. And um, with that, go ahead. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, uh, you know, I, uh, the, a phrase that I've always um, believed in and loved is just very simple. It says that the world turns on the cloister and also um, the holy sacrifice of the mass. Um, but I guess what I was thinking of is, oh my goodness, um, those who attempt this, who, pardon me, those who attempt this, who are living in the world, we're trying to minimize the places we go, the things we're involved in, who we expose ourselves, and that's all really a good thing, but at the same time and necessary, but um, I think what I'm trying to express is um, a personal witness out there and being a light uh, where you are. Now, a man at work, he has to do that. That's where he is. And people are seeing him at, and, you know, and notice his difference and also um, things like that. But um, I guess I'm, I'm not expecting I'm not able to express this, so okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I think I, I think I get what you're saying. And, you know, I think there is this sense in our day and, you know, that we'll take things in a simplistic way or we'll take one little phrase. You know, Pope Francis saying that we should bear the, the smell of the sheep, as it were. And so to engage others uh, about the faith and to know others, you know, that we... Uh, come to them and come to all with a kind of tenderness and, and the mercy of Christ. But, you know, in terms of what the spiritual tradition and the saints tell us is that we're never to put ourselves in a kind of spiritual or moral jeopardy in doing so. That we are to bear witness certainly to the love of Christ and the gospel, but that does not mean that we hang out in places that are obviously going to put us in a in a kind of spiritual jeopardy that are going to be a source of temptation for us, and we even heard in the Evergetinos on Monday that uh, when someone is uh, uh, hearing uh, the confession of another's thoughts, that they are only to allow themselves to listen to what is absolutely necessary in order to understand it, but not to allow the person or allow themselves to hear the greater detail or specifics of it uh, because they are not impervious. You know, that hearing those things and being said and articulated then places them in the midst of them and places them within the mind. And so even the, the most experienced confessors and those who have the deepest prayer life would have to be guarded in that regard. You know, that there are times where one has to ask and enter into uh, what the person is suffering with or struggling with, but not to the point, again, of, uh, of placing one's own soul in jeopardy and spiritual well-being. And so, yes, we are to be a light to the world, but it's how we, we live and love, see how they love one another. And it's how we engage each other within the world, you know, with the charity, generosity of spirit. But it's not placing, you know, putting uh, our light on on top of the bushel for the world to see does not mean, again, entering into places of ill repute, you know, and thinking somehow that we are not going to be harmed by that, that we're going to evangelize, 
by placing our, ourselves in certain situations. And I, I know that sounds sort of, you know, it sounds naive even to say it, but I think there is that kind of, of naivete sometimes when the faith is talked about uh, without, and part of it is that we have become somewhat disconnected from the spiritual tradition of guarding the heart. And that being something precious uh, and, uh, and something that God would want us to do. If we are temples of the Holy Spirit, then we are to treat ourselves as such and uh, not place that in jeopardy. And so that's why I was even mentioned Philip Neri earlier on in terms of averting his gaze from what might be innocent in the eyes of many people, but from a person who knows his heart and knows that he can be drawn in a certain direction, he knew that he had to guard and protect. And this was one of the most accessible saints and engaged people in this very personal kind of way. But he was very careful. And there were times that people tried to trip him up by putting him in a room with a couple of people of ill repute. And he, you know, flew out the door. And I think something similar happened to Thomas Aquinas, where he had to burn, you know, pull out a, you know, a burning uh, brazier from the, uh, like from a fire and, you know, to drive the, the person away. And, uh, and so, again, we don't want to be naive about it. You know, the evil one is going to seek every possible way to trip us up. Good question, though. And we'll see where John takes us here, maybe to flesh it out a little bit more. Anthony. In section 12, we are dealing with stymied vocations. In section 11, we were warned against being self-appointed saviors of the world, right? Maybe appointing yourself a savior of the world is like dwelling in the dumps of your sin. The gaze of the person is turned inward and look at what I can do or look at what I did. And that is harmful to the person and to the world. It is God who gives the vocation and the salvation. The goal of Christian life is a genuine blissful loss of the self-awareness as a branch loses itself in the vine. If, we, if he dwells on his fault, He's consumed with canker. If he boasts of himself, he's consumed with worthless woody growth, not fruit. Absolutely, so so beautifully put, and uh, and John will flesh it out in in many ways in the same terms. That you know that we aren't the savior of others, you know, and God does not call us to be the savior of all. There's one savior, and uh, you know. God himself calling us along this particular path, as you put it, and not turning the gaze towards ourself, you know, whether it's to be self-appointed saviors or to pursue a particular vocation that in our mind fits what we want to do. Well, I have these particular talents so that this means that I should do this in my life. I would be well, most suited to this, and that might not be the case. I mean, Christ chose fishermen, you know, to be his evangelists and tax collectors. And, you know, so it wasn't because of their particular gifts or talents. I think it was their faith and their capacity to, you know, to be docile, teachable, and, and the repentant hearts. Carol Nypaper. Delivered them up to doom. Please explain this part. Which number was that in again? Somebody help me out here. 
at the end of number 12. Okay. It is better to grieve our parents than the Lord, for he has created us and saved us, but they have often ruined their loved ones and delivered them up to doom. Right. That preventing a person from following Christ and uh, the inspiration uh, uh, of the spirit to give oneself over that then you are redirecting them upon a path that is contrary to God's will and perhaps along a path that leads them uh, to turn away from the faith altogether. And you know, so like spouses, parents are to assist their, their children in being obedient to God and in seeking God. And, you know, whenever they direct them away from a particular vocation or, or simply to pursuing their, from pursuing their faith deeply, they, they put them in harm's way. You know, this is a time where heroic faith is needed, you know, and we can't have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. You know, there's a time that's coming, and I think we could all see it. We know it's here, you know, where the, being a Christian is going to be very difficult. And even maintaining purity of heart takes heroic faith and an ascetical life and the courage of the martyrs of old. And we have to let go of the illusion that tells us something different. And I, I get the whole homeschooling movement better than I ever have in the past. You know, I'd be terrified if I were a parent today in sending my, my children to public school or Catholic school for that matter, uh, because of all the indoctrination that takes place. And, uh, you know, and the formation of faith is put to the side, marginalized or so distorted that it's no longer reflective of the gospel at all. You know, Saint, again, not always come back to St. Philip Neri, but at one point he said, heaven is not for cowards. You know, there has to be this choice that we make in our life for Christ and the, the willingness to embrace all that that means for us. And when we see everything going on uh, in the world, this kind of woke culture that's, you know, uh, you know, all of that's going to be directed towards the church. And we already see that taking place. And there are certain parts of the world where churches are being burned down and you never hear about it in the news. France, you know, it's just like one church after another is burning. 50 people were shot to death in a church in Nigeria, I think just this past week. And you rarely hear mention of that. And certainly that was had to do, you know, was directed towards their faith. So, okay. Number 13, he is an exile who having knowledge sits like one foreign, one of foreign speech among people of another tongue. So is humble and unassuming that, you know, even though there might be great wisdom within the heart, he sits as one as, who has foreign, you know, is, is in a foreign land and doesn't speak the language that, uh, and you know, this takes us back, I think, to Carol's question, you know, this idea of being a light put, put on the bushel, not underneath, you know, that th there are certain things that are precious that are not meant simply to be scattered about or to be placed simply before others in order that they might be mocked. 
you know, that there are certain things about the, the faith that we have to gauge whether or not there's a kind of receptivity there. And, uh, but also here, you know, to be humble and unassuming uh, that even if one has gained a certain experiential knowledge in the practice of the faith, not to put oneself out there in a prideful kind of way, you know, to be an exile in this sense of not yearning or letting go of that yearning, to be seen as important in the eyes of others or smart or deeply spiritual, prayerful, uh, to let go of that self-esteem to such an extent that what one desires is to direct others to Christ or the path that leads to Christ and not to oneself. You know, we're not meant to be showmen and show women, you know, in our practice of the faith. We're always to be pointing to Christ. A lot of the beautiful paintings of John the Baptist is exactly that of him directing, you know, pointing others in the direction of, of the Lord. He must increase, I must decrease. You know, this is the kind of exile that we're to embrace. It's not from hatred that we separate ourselves from our own people or places, God forbid, but to avoid the harm which might come to us from them. And this as in everything else, it is Christ who teaches us what is good for us. It is clear that he often left his parents according to the flesh, and when he was told, thy mother and thy brethren are seeking thee, our good Lord and master at once showed us an example of dispassionate hatred when he said, my mother and my brethren are they who do the will of my father who is in heaven. And so even though natural bonds are strong, you know, the, the bond that we have in Christ, fidel fidelity to God and to his will is the deeper bond. And uh, it's not about hating others in the way that we would often think of the, the word being used uh, in our day, you know, of despising others, of holding them in contempt, of wanting nothing to do with them. It's referring more to this absolute love that we are to have for Christ and all other love for others in, in the world and the things of the world flow from that reality. And uh, Again, it's the right ordering of desire, the right ordering of loves that then gives us the capacity to love others as, as we should and as God would want us to. And the, the line about midway through the paragraph I thought was important. And this, as in everything else, it is Christ who teaches us what is good for us. And so it's our attentiveness to what Christ desires us to do. It's not always going to be what we are inclined to do, even if it's good, or what is most appealing to us or attractive to us or where we think that we can do the most good. It might be to a more hidden life and simply doing the ordinary things of day-to-day -day life in a loving way that builds up our families, that builds up our community, and that is most pleasing to God or builds up the church as a whole. Again, we have to move away from the individualistic understanding of the life of faith and being part of the body of Christ. Someone who lives this hidden life, but with this deep love of God, deep love of family, uh, you know, is going to strengthen the church as much as anybody else. And in some ways, even more, because it is hidden. And the faith that drives it is hidden. Robin Greco.
Bob and Greco, you here with us? Are you typing? Yeah, sorry, Father, I was typing and I just not fast enough. Um, so just touching on this point real quick, and I'm not sure if this has anything to do with this, but I think it does. Your comment, um, you said that Jesus sometimes asks us to do things that we, I guess, think that we shouldn't, don't want to do or do in a different way. So do you think that Jesus asks, you know, just anybody, everyday people to be um, solitary in prayer, not person out in the world, um, you know, helping and feeding the poor, just he wants people to be solitary in prayer. Do you believe that he asked of that? Yes, most certainly so. I think there are those that are to be, in a sense, prayer warriors, you know, and that they strengthen the church in and through this undistracted attention to God and this depth of prayer. And it's no less important for the life of the church than those who are out preaching the gospel. And uh, even if we think of the apostles, you know, eventually they had to get to this point where the general care of the church was taken over by the, the deacons and others in order that they might have a greater freedom to evangelize. But, you know, what was the work of those deacons or others who took care of the body as a whole and the needs of others less important? Or was the preaching more important than what the deacons were doing? It's all part of the life of the body of Christ. And so if carried out with fidelity, love, humility, then it's beautiful in the eyes of God. Again, we have to think about how God looks into the heart and what he sees, not from ex externals. You know, it often it can be this hidden life again, that bears most fruit for, for the body of Christ or holds it together from flying apart. I often wonder today what the heck is holding the church together other than the grace of God, because we're doing everything that we possibly can to wreck it. And, uh, and so there has to be somebody who's, you know, and, you know, to be honest with you, most of the people that I talk to uh, in one form or another, you know, there are so many people out there that have this deep, incredible, beautiful faith, you know, and have experienced so much suffering in their life. And, you know, they've carried these heavy crosses and they've done it with such deep love and faith in God. Sometimes they feel like they're holding on by a thread. Uh, sometimes they deal with chronic illness and so cannot do anything and are deep prayers. And it is these, I think, that are the strength of the church. And, you know, if we were living our lives as we, we should be, and if priests were living our lives as we should be, we wouldn't even have to get up and preach. You know, it, our lives would, would be so. And, you know, I think when we look to the East, you know, and we look to the Desert Fathers in particular, they were living icons of Christ and the gospel. You know, by their purity of heart, how they live their life, by the transfiguration and transformation that they open themselves up to in the life of grace. And so people who came and, and encountered them immediately experienced that presence. And we hear this again, you know, about saints that gazing upon their countenance, you know, that they would be transformed by the grace of God being so active within them that those who gazed upon them, you know, were transformed. And every once in a while you hear these stories from the Desert Fathers, you know, where they bring somebody to talk to an elder 
and he remained silent. And they asked him afterwards, well, why didn't you say anything to these people who came to see you? And he, he tells them, well, if they weren't edified by my silence, then they're not going to be edified by my, my, by my words. You know, and so we would probably do better most times if we did remain silent in the face of so many things that we experience on a daily basis and feel the need to articulate our frustration, our irritation, you know, our anger at all these things. You know, if we were to remain silent, would probably be the, the better thing and turn to prayer. Okay. Number 14. No, number 15. Let him be your, this, again, highlight this entire paragraph uh, and memorize it. It's one of the most important in this step. Let him be your father who is able and willing to labor with you in bearing the burden of your sins and your mother contrition, which can cleanse you from impurity and your brother, your comrade who toils and fights side by side with you in your striving toward the heights. They acquire an inseparable wife, the remembrance of death and let your beloved children be the size of your heart. Make your body your slave and your friends, the holy powers, angels, who can help you at your hour of death if they become your friends. This is the generation of them that seek the Lord. It's sometimes the Desert Fathers are extraordinarily poetic and their, their writings are so beautiful. Uh, but I, th I thought this captured in a wonderful way. You know, I think when we think of ourselves and, uh, and we even, when we think of the isolation that we sometimes experience within the world, the and how painful that can be to us at times feelings of loneliness and uh, i think it calls us to look at really what is going on in our hearts and in particular in our relationship with christ you know who is it that accompanies us uh in and through our life and in all the struggles that we bear uh does our faith illuminate our paths in such a fashion that we do uh, see and are conscious of the presence of the angels, of our guardian angels, of the saints who intercede for us who, who, or, or to whom we are particularly drawn or the individuals in our life who are really striving for the same thing that we are striving for and who are the ones that are there to pick us up when we're struggling and falling and encourage us to, to carry on. And do we foster, you know, this kind of compunction and contrition, you know, is, is, is this what nurtures us in the spiritual life or do we turn to other things for nourishment? And so I think John here in this one paragraph, uh, you know, pr presents us with this image. He paints uh, with these broad strokes about what, what our life is to look look like and who it is that we are to surround ourselves, whether it's particular virtues or the angels or the saints uh, that we you know have within our lives. Are these the friendships that we cultivate? And you know it's funny from an early age, you know, I think part of it's our own insecurity. You know, we are always trying to make this connection with others, 
And because we don't want to be alone or see ourselves as an outsider or isolated. And I moved a lot growing up and I always made these friendships with sports teams. So I'd immediately I'd meet like 40 guys and, you know, that filled this void immediately. But it wasn't necessarily the friends that I would have made over the course of time if I were in one place or knew them well. I was thrown into their midst, you know, because of a common interest, but not necessarily the common interest of the faith or, or that which would be formative or uplifting. You know, it provided me with a kind of socialization, but it, did it provide me with the things that would be lasting, enduring? And, you know, it's funny when you graduate that final day of high school and you go to college you know, and you never play sports again, you know, all of a sudden, you know, those friendships r remain a memory, but were, were they something that were deeply formative and enduring? And it's often those that share that common faith and struggle that become the enduring friends. Anthony, this is why living in Catholic community is so helpful. Our surrounding culture is directly contrary to each of family members he raises here to our attention. Community reinforcement of Catholic themes is important. Agree, you know, there were times where there was a strong Catholic culture and communities were tightly bound together, and that even that culture sort of revolved around the life of the church. You know, the events there, but also so, uh, not only liturgies and uh, devotions, but also social events, all, a whole host of things. And one would meet one spouse, you know, there too often. And so there was at points, you know, a stronger Catholic culture that could hold the community together but also uh, maintain, you know, that Catholic ethic within which one would, would live. And, you know, I don't want to idealize past generations, but I, I think that did exist. And now it's very hard to have that. People are in and out for mass on a weekend and often, uh, you know, building a communities over donuts or something like that, donuts and coffee. And I'm not that there's anything wrong with donuts and coffee, but, it doesn't necessarily build this kind of, of community uh, where, you know, there is this deep love of, of, of Christ, of Our Lady, of, of the sacramental life, and even the support in day-to-day -day life where there is this experience of Christian charity, but also these many opportunities to offer it to others within the community too. We often live in this kind of isolation. Where my parents last lived, you know, I was often shocked. I'd go there in the summer and it was like a ghost town. You know, no kids out playing and no adults out and about either. It was a beautiful country. And you think, what the heck's going on here? And I think pretty much everybody was either working or inside playing on the computers. And so there wasn't any connection, even between neighbors often that would be in the house right next door. And so I think, you know, and especially through COVID and all that kind of stuff, I think that kind of connection with others has diminished. Except with all of you, of course, we, I can do this. It's been surprising through Zoom. You're all my virtual friends. I love you so much. <laughs> uh, 
but it has, I, your point is well taken, Anthony. And I think this is part, part of what needs to be uh, fostered because we don't live our faith in isolation as islands. And even the monks had this kind of culture, you know, and support. And uh, even the earliest ones, you know, when Anthony found St. Paul the Hermit, you know, Anthony pretty much thought he was alone in, the, in embracing this path that he felt called to. And he, you know, comes upon Paul the Hermit. It's like, thank goodness there's someone else who's been called to the same life. And they begin to talk about the spiritual life. Unfortunately, Paul was to die soon after, uh, so it was short-lived. But nonetheless, you know, I think, you know, it's that supportive life that allowed them knowing others were living it and the passing down of a specific tradition allowed them to live it in an enduring fashion. Number 16, longing for God extinguishes longing for our parents. And so anyone who says he has both, has both is deceiving himself. You should listen to him who says, no one can serve two lords. I have not come, says the Lord, to bring peace on earth, that is love of parents for sons and love of brothers for brothers who have resolved to serve me, but war and a sword in order to separate lovers of God from lovers of the world, the lovers of material things for lovers of spiritual things, the lovers of fame from the humble-minded, for strife and separation delight the Lord when they spring from the love of himself. So a very hard paragraph uh, to read, uh, and, but, you know, it does, again, tell us something about what the focus of our life should be, uh, that we, when we read the gospel, and when we look at the life of Christ himself, and when we meditate upon the cross, or the gift of himself in the Holy Eucharist, and we understand what that means for us. And what often comes to mind is the gospel passage uh, from John about the, his, his teaching on the Holy Eucharist, when he begins to say, and you know, for my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. And we remember in John that a large group of his disciples ceased to follow him at that time. And even that he turns to Peter at that point and says, will you leave me too? Are you going to leave me too? And Peter has to say, even though he doesn't understand, you know, certainly what Christ is teaching fully about the Eucharist, you know, where are we to go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words of everlasting life. That he was able to see and acknowledge in Christ uh, his Lord. And though his intellect failed, certainly in enabling him to understand that mystery, he trusted the, what he saw and, and experienced in Christ, the love, the mercy, the gentleness there, the truth of his words, so that he could make this ascent to Christ, even when others left. And, you know, sometimes maybe we underestimate them. You know, sometimes I wonder if they did understand what he was saying, <clears throat> that he was saying, you know, he was going to give himself uh, to others as their food and drink. He was, you know, if he was going to become Eucharist for others, allow himself to be broken and poured out, what would that mean for those who were going to follow him? 
And every time that he said, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem where I'll be arrested and put to death. I imagine a few disciples dropped off at the, those times too. And so I think what John is saying here is that there, there's something about the word of God, what is revealed to us in Christ that demands a response from the human heart. And not like we will often do with other things. Well, maybe, you know, maybe I'll do that or maybe I won't. You know, I think what's looked for is this response to come follow me. And it's not an invitation, you know, to a party or, uh, you know, uh, a gathering or a talk. You know, this is God himself saying, come follow me. He is the Lord of life, the governor of life, the Lord of love, saying, come follow me. And the response to that is to drop our nets and leave our boat and, and follow him, should he call us. And that is often going to pull us away, and not, if not from parents, you know, if they share the things that we do, then from things that we might have loved or have had a part of our life. But now in order to respond to the Lord in the way that he's calling us, it might mean our letting go of our hold upon them in order that we might seize hold fully of what he's calling us to in that moment. And that can even be something like uh, the call to prayer, you know, of not going out with others when we, we know that we haven't spent that time in prayer that day. Or we know that the next morning we're going to be going to mass. And so we seek to prepare ourselves in mind and heart in order to enter into that mystery fully. So rather than you know, treating that night before our reception of the Holy Eucharist you know, as you know, in dissipation, that we would prepare ourselves through reading the scriptures through uh, spending time in prayer, of stilling the heart, of going to confession, you know, not, out, uh, not automatically, but again, out of this desire to prepare ourselves for the extraordinary gift that we are to receive. You know, that is all in a similar way to what John is describing here, uh, this, this willingness to, to separate ourselves from the normal course of things to embrace what God is offering us in the moment. And we, we have to be listening and ready, listening and, and ready to hear and embrace it. So that brings us, Ren, go ahead. Though Climacus takes things even farther by assigning familial relations even to the version assigning a familial relations even to the virtues, paragraph 15 reminds me of this writing of St. John Consock. When you are praying alone and your spirit is dejected and you are wearied and oppressed by your loneliness, remember then as always that God, the Trinity, looks upon you with eyes brighter than the sun, also all the angels, your guardian angel, and all the saints of God. Truly they do, for they are all one in God, and where God is, they are there there they are there there are they also where the sun is there also are directed all its rays no matter what one's vocation it seems a kind of loneliness and isolation in this world is always a part of it 
for the Christian. And thus so many of the fathers give advice seeking out the invisible heavenly community to combat it. Yes, you know, I think if we are living the gospel and embracing the gospel fully, we are going to, to feel like exiles in a world that has turned away from him. And, you know, even our own personal experience shows us that as well, that when we have been immersed in sin, or when we do immerse ourselves in sin, we become exiled from that which is life-giving. And so we begin to experience that emptiness on even a more profound level. And so one doesn't have to go to the desert to experience this exile. You know, I think it's in our day-to-day -day life of living for Christ that uh, we're, we are going to experience it. You know, if he himself was rejected and tells us that they will hate you as they hated me, then I think part of our expectation is that we are going to live as, as though we are exiles in a foreign land, that we are citizens of the kingdom, sons and daughters of God. And so there should be this longing within our hearts for that alone, which brings fulfillment. And I think part of it is that we become so comfortable with the things in this world that we lose ourselves in them. And then in doing so, we lose sight of God. And sometimes, you know, it's the, the writings of the, you know, this is part of the reason that, you know, they're stripping themselves so radically of everything, allows them to speak to us in such a way that it, it awakens us from this kind of illusion that we often slip into. It can be like a bucket of cold water often. You know, I have to admit that it can be jarring and unsettling and leave us unsettled for a long period of time, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes God will turn our life upside down if it means our salvation. And, you know, if we haven't been flipped over a bunch of times in our life, we one sort of has to wonder, you know, where, where are we living our life? What are we conscious of? Ashley says, I think this detachment is harder than believing that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Uh, at times it can feel like that. You know, it can be like sweating blood. You know, that we have such a firm grip on certain things in this life that we think and feel are necessary for our identity. That even the mere thought of it makes us sweat. Ambrose. Sorry, took a while to write, so I got behind in current topic. In my Dominican circles, we often talk about evangelization. It is absolutely crucial. I think all of us can agree, but there is remarkable disagreement on the best way to go about it. Some folks say that simply speaking the truth is decisive means to win souls. Others say simply accompanying it. Most know intuitively there is some truth in both. But I find folks keen to argue as if one way is effectively the only way, while the other won't work at all, and they can get quite agitated about it. But it's a matter of emphasis. Different folks have different gifts, and more importantly, we need to be sensitive to each and everyone, every situation, and listen for the Spirit's guidance. Folks take action, pay that lip service, but when pressed, they seem to think they can't just do that. It can't be that simple. They get antsy. Prayer just isn't enough. 
but I return to the Old Testament, Israel often being a superb type of the individual faith journey. Every time Israel tried to go on their own, doing some what seemed right and wise to them, even good intentions, it failed sometimes spectacularly right. I see what seems to be so much damage done in the church and to our Christian witness by folks who just can't uh, cannot let their light shine, though it seems to me it's more of that spectacular failing because they don't wait on the spirit. If they did, then we'd, then we'd see the fruit of the spirit made manifest, but more often than not, we don't. Waiting on the Lord in prayer, being silent, living in that exile increasingly seems to me to be the way. Let action, if it is needed, come from that. Right, you know, and you know, John Paul, uh said you know that evangelization begins with adoration that it's out of adoring the lord and allowing ourselves to be drawn into that mystery that we are transformed and are given the capacity then uh to speak as he desires us to speak or to bear witness to him as he desires us to bear witness to him and we are not bearing witness to ourselves and it can be very easy for us to get confused about that. You know, just speaking the right words isn't enough. It has to come from a heart that is on fire for the love of Christ and has been transformed by his grace. Otherwise we add to the noise of the world. It's not evangelization. You know, we add to the agitation of the world and Christians are doing that pretty well you know, in terms of adding to the agitation. We fight with each other as much as with anybody else. And, you know, when we look to the life of Christ or to the examples that you gave from the Old Testament, you know, the Israelites often failing spectacularly because of taking their own path. But we often fail spectacularly, too, because we set out on our own way rather than our responding to Christ, follow me, or telling us to go and do what he desires us to do. And, you know, this is why vocations to the priesthood or religious life are often tested and tested for a long time, because, uh, you know, there can be so much of the self and self-will, even in the pursuit of religious things. And certainly that's true also of what we've been discussing here of evangelization, that there can be so much of ourselves involved in that because we haven't taken the time, as you said, to listen to God. And it is an interesting thing, you know, the hidden life of Christ is every bit as important to us as I think what we hear proclaimed within the Gospels of his active life, of his ministry. And 30 years in this little town, you know, a hidden life, you know, and being formed and shaped in that, you know, that something was taking place there, but we rarely, you know, enter into that mystery. Ren. Hello, Ren. Oh, you had your hand up. Nothing? Okay. So that brings us a little past 8.30 here, and this seems like a good place to start. Stop. It's, a, you know, it's, again, always a challenging step, but if we slow ourselves down and listen and, and try to let it, you know, see it, see our own life through it, it we really begin uh, to capture something of the deeper meaning of the gospel and the conversion that we're called to. Okay. So when we close there with the, again, with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, 
thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May only God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks Thank you, you all. Thank you all. Wonderful Thank you, group. Father. Thank uh, you. Couple of brief announcements. Uh, some good news. Uh, found a lawyer who's going to put together the nonprofit for Philadelphia Ministries, but it's going to probably take a couple months. So more by the end of the summer, but I'm glad I have somebody who is really dedicated to setting it up correctly right from the beginning. Uh, but uh, also uh, say a little prayer for me tomorrow. I meet with the archbishop and two of his uh, close counsel. And, uh, and so get a, I'll get a better sense of where things are going here in the future for me. And so exciting, that's at 9 a.m. tomorrow. So be down on your knees, begging the Lord, help Father David, <laughs> uh, so I could use it. But uh, so exciting times. And, uh, and then also Ren's gonna work on a website over time and we'll try to gather everything together in one place. And you know, all the documents that we put together, videos as well as links to the podcast moving forward. And I just want to say for people here and people who will be listening to the podcast later that the City of Desert will be coming back. Um, the old episodes from before Father started doing them on social media, but they'll be coming back in podcast format um, so that people don't have to be watched keeping YouTube live on their phones in order to watch it. Um, and so those will be coming onto the Philokalia Podbean site under their own channel. Um, and those series will be divided by the Abba or saint who is speaking. Um, and then the ones that Father does on social media will become podcasts as well. Um, but uh, People don't want to see the beard flapping around. They don't want to... <laughs> Come on. Be back eventually. Can all this time grow in this thing? At least you could watch the two minutes <laughs> Now he has this big shiny Eastern cross too. <laughs> uh, the pod, I think it's a good idea, the podcast in the long run, because I think a lot of people listen in cars and things like that. So video isn't often practical. That's good. Very good. All right. Thank you, everybody. Mm -hmm.